We'll be reading John chapter 7, verse 53 through John 8, verse 11. And the Word of God says, And everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear them. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Let's pray. Father, please prepare our hearts now for the church to engage by way of listening. We have open hearts to listen to your all-authoritative word and impart to me, Lord, your grace to declare that truth, not by might nor by strength, but by your spirit, so that your church would be edified and anyone here, Lord, who's dead in trespasses and sins, that through your word, the proclamation of your gospel truth, that they'd be born again today. We pray these things in the mighty name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and together we all say, Amen. Now, Jesus, again found himself in conflict with the Jewish religious leaders of the day. And here in John 8, he confronts a group of detached, self-righteous prudes and a woman who's guilty of open sexual sin. Now, the scribes and Pharisees thought that people could become righteous through this lifelong devotion to a, to a complex system of religious rules and works. They were laying that burden upon the people. That's a heavy burden to bear. If you think you can work your way to heaven, you have a heavy load to bear. And understand that that load is perfection. To get to heaven, you must be perfect. Therefore, you can never uphold that burden. So listen on for the good news. But these Jews, they attempted to follow this meticulous practice of ceremonial obedience to the Mosaic Law. But all of their attempts of religious piety were merely an outward ornamental disguise. It was a, it was a, fod, a facade of self-deception. Of which Jesus referred to in Luke 18 verse 9 as those who trusted in themselves. That they were righteous. And they despised others. They had no category in their theological structure for the sinners that Jesus associated with as to how they could ever be saved and be brought to divine grace. No comprehension whatsoever. It was religion, religion, 
legalism. After Jesus called one of his own disciples, Matthew, who was a despised tax collector, Jesus approached him. Jesus went to Matthew. Jesus walked up to Matthew and he said, follow me. Matthew left everything and followed Christ. So he had a party. He invited all of his tax-collecting friends and other sinners, other like-minded, wretched, rotten, depraved sinners. They had a party. And in Matthew 9, 10, it says, As Jesus sat at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? In Luke 19, 7, Jesus called yet another tax collector to himself, not as one of his twelve, but as a sinner saved by grace. And when they saw that, they all complained, saying, he's gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. And now, this morning, we will see how he deals with an adulterous woman. But before we proceed in our study, we need to make an observation here at the outset. There's some controversy among biblical scholars regarding this passage of Scripture. John chapter 7, verse 53, through John chapter 8, verse 11. Now you may notice in your Bible that this passage is in brackets. With a footnote. Probably at the bottom or perhaps in a side or middle margin. That states that the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811. Some Bibles will simply leave it out. They'll end it, verse 52 in chapter 7, and they'll pick back up again in John chapter 8, verse 12. Now, although most of the manuscripts that include this story place it right here where we're looking at it, in John, at the end of John 7 and into John 8, some place it instead after Luke 21, 38. Whereas others will place it after John 7.36 or John 7.44 and sometimes you'll find it after John 21.25. So the question of debate asks this question. Is this passage part of the inspired canon of God or not? Now while some Bible scholars have expressed doubt as to the holy inspiration of this text, most scholars do agree that this event did without doubt occur. Now, in order to defend it, we simply compare its consistency with the rest of Scripture. First, we see that this account clearly fits the pattern and purpose of John's Gospel, and that is to present Jesus Christ as God in human flesh. For only God can do what Jesus does in this passage, as you will see. Next, we see Christ pictured entirely in character. The Savior who came not to condemn, but to, to save. Thirdly, in no way do these verses teach something that violates any other portion of Scripture whatsoever. These verses do confirm and do support other portions of Scripture. And there is no definite conclusive evidence that it should have been left out. Now, some speculate that it may have been left out because it appears to minimize adultery. The great Augustine wrote that it was omitted because of a prudish fear that it would encourage adultery. 
However, as we read the account carefully, we will see that it does not condone sin in any way whatsoever. Rather, it clearly, without a shadow of a doubt, absolutely condemns sin. So we'll proceed in our study of this beautiful, celebrated account of God's, here it is, redeeming love. God's redeeming love. Now, the center of attention here is not religious hypocrisy. It is not the scribes and the Pharisees, nor is it this woman caught in adultery and brought before Jesus. In all the narratives, in all the gospel accounts, every circumstance, every dilemma, the focus is Jesus Christ. Everything and everyone else is secondary to Him. John's purpose for writing this gospel, do not forget, is to declare the paragon person of all humanity throughout all time, presenting in the flesh God. Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ, God incarnate. That's his purpose for writing this gospel. And this is a beautiful account of condemnation and forgiveness as only God can dispense. And in, our, in your bulletin, you will see four contrasting points that we see in our text here this morning. Number one, we see divine humility contrasted with human comfort. Secondly, divine wisdom and human folly. Third, divine condemnation and human self-righteousness. And then fourthly, we see divine commendation and human forgiveness in verses 10 and 11. Let's look at contrast number one. Divine humility and human comfort. John seven fifty-three through 8, verse 1. And everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, if indeed this account fits here, this would have been the seventh day of the great Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, all of chapter 7 talks about the Feast of Tabernacles. That was a feast which would commemorate the, the leading of Almighty God, taking His children Israel and, and leading them through the wilderness for those 40 years. And what they would have done is they would have set up these temporary booths, these huts made out of sticks and branches and so on, and they would dwell in those for seven days as they would look to the stars and feel the wind, remembering how God provided tabernacles or tents for them in the wilderness. Feast of Tabernacles. Then on the last great day of the feast is when they would, the priests would take the water and the golden vessel from the pool of Siloam and they would pour it out upon the altar. And that is when Jesus stood up in John 7.36, and he said, If anyone thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. That he was everything. He was the fulfillment of everything that they were celebrating. The water provided from the rock in the wilderness. He is that rock. He is the living water. So here it would be the seventh day of the great feast. It was at this day they would have taken down those booths. They would have returned home to warmth and comfort, family and friends but not Jesus. He walks down from Jerusalem to the, through the Kidron Valley, through the Kidron Brook, and up again to the Mount of Olives for His dwelling place. 
As the multitudes go to family, Jesus retires alone to the Mount of Olives. And this would have been in the cool of October. For that is when the Feast of Tabernacles occurred every year. And here is the creator of the world who's an alien in the very world that he spoke into existence. But this was a common practice of our Lord. In Matthew 8, 19, it says, A certain scribe had come to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. How flippant people are with their words, right? And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds have Birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This is voluntary humiliation. The incarnate Son of God in his earthly visitation, stepping out of glory, lowering himself, taking on humanity, and then dwelling in the wilderness. May we, who are created in his image, have such a mindset of humiliation as the Son of God did. Philippians 2.5 says, Let this mind be in you, which was in also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, literal translation, slave. Doulos, slave. Taking on the form of a slave and coming in the likeness of men. That's the epitome of voluntary humiliation. Amen? Jesus stepping out of glory, condescending to become like one of us? Come on, somebody. The long-awaited Messiah who was unrecognized and unwanted, having no home. But nonetheless, the Mount of Olives is where Jesus often retired for, I'm sure, intimate fellowship with His Father. Deep fellowship. Remember how Christ lowered Himself when you roll over in your nice, comfortable bed tonight. Amen? That leads us to contrast number two. Divine wisdom and human folly. Divine wisdom and human folly. Verses 2 through 6. Look at verse 2. Now early in the morning He came again into the temple and all the people came to Him and sat down and He taught them. Now look at the word again. This indicates that the narrative included a previous visit or visits. Now if you go back to 7.14, Jesus entered the temple during the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 14, now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and what did He do? He taught. Verse 37, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Again, he teaches. He proclaims divine truth. Since it takes place in the temple, this is at dawn, brothers and sisters. And notice, this is at dawn and the people are coming to him. Now he had to make his way down from the Mount of Olives, through the Kidron Brook, up through the Kidron Valley, back up to the city, into the temple, and it's dawn, and they're coming to Him, anticipating more divine teaching. There was that remnant. There always will be that remnant. There's that small group of those who truly believe, that are hungry for truth. Hungry for truth. He sat down. A teacher, a rabbi, the position for teaching was to sit. 
And when a rabbi would sit and take one of the positions of one of the pillars in the temple, in the temple courts, the people would come and they would listen. So they're standing around, he's sitting, he's teaching. Jesus teaches, 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 teaches. That was his earthly ministry, teaching. No gimmicks, no entertainment. You know, churches today, Christians who are in churches today that are being led by gimmicks, being entertained, they're being condescended to and they don't even know it. And they're steeped in ignorance of divine truth. They're being fed junk food. They become addicts. And when you give them a real dose of something nutritious, it upsets their system. Teach, 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 is what Jesus said. And that's what he did. No drama, no marketing strategies, no promotional gimmicks here. Simply teaching the truth of God and people were mesmerized by his authority. Jesus, untaught, Jesus taught unlike anyone before him, nor would there be any like him thereafter. Remember, after the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, it says, The people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. Notice now the scenario. Here's what's going on. Verse 3. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Scribes and Pharisees. The scribes interpreted the law. They made copies of the scriptures. We have a Bible here today that we read. It's the authoritative, inspired word of God that is copies of copies of copies of the original manuscripts. And out of all antiquity, out of all historical writings throughout time, of all ancient documents, there is more documented proof of the Old Testament and the New Testament than there is all other ancient documents put together. So you had these scribes, that's what they did. Then you had the Pharisees, the quote-unquote upholders of the law, who were far from ever keeping the law. Many scribes were Pharisees, but not all scribes were. You had these two groups. They walked side by side together. And while the crowd was gathered about listening to Jesus, they rudely interrupt. Now imagine the scene. Here's a woman pulled away from her sexual liaison. Here comes the religious rulers dragging a woman, her clothes in disarray, her hair is all disheveled. She certainly probably would have been defiant, probably cursing at them, yelling at them, even spitting at them. And, and they throw her down into the midst of the temple. Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Which means that the witnesses has seen the very act. So the question is, where's the dude? These men were brutally wicked. Obviously, their object here was to use this woman, exploit her sin, subject her to open shame, all in an attempt to indict Jesus. That's their goal here. They're tired of him. They think they have an airtight case. They think they have Jesus cornered. Notice how they address him as the polite rabbi or, or teacher. And then they explain the situation. 
Now, the woman's guilt is evident. She is guilty. She was taken in the act. So they continue, verse 5. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such, keyword, such should be stoned. But what do you say? The Jews had been after Jesus since his ministry began, and they wanted him dead. From the time he kicked off his public ministry, back in John 2, he turned the temple upside down. Remember that? During Passover? The money changers? Jesus went and he made a cord of whips. He just didn't happen to pick one up. He made it. Premeditated action. And then he chased out the men along with the animals. There's gentle Jesus. Up to this point, Jesus had made fools of these religious hypocrites. Absolute fools. Time and time again. They tried to arrest him, but they couldn't. Why not? For his time had not yet come. When his time did come, then he was delivered into the hands of man. Crucified. So after much failure at this point, they thought they could get him to indict himself by his very words, you see. Now they knew the law perfectly well. Understand that. But here they slightly attempt to twist scripture. You see... The name Jesus draws people. False teachers will take a whole bunch of truth and then they'll just twist or throw in just a little bit of, of, of a lie. Otherwise, they're too obvious. That's why they're referred to as wolves in sheep's what? Clothing. They look like the real deal. They sound like the real deal. But if you lack discernment and a knowledge of the truth, they'll suck you right in too. What they say here is they say such are to be stoned. Their word usage is in the feminine, meaning such women. Whereas scripture declares that such violators, man and woman, are to be stoned when caught in the act. You see? They're both to be put to death. Leviticus 20, verse 10, it says, The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy 22.22 If a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die. They were attempting to back Jesus into a corner. Imagine that. Foolishness. In order to get him to provide this hasty response. Not only was there a double standard involved here, the fact that they did not produce the man makes it apparent that they were not interested in forcing the law. They had another motive. Verse 6, this they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down. He wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. They didn't want to stone the woman. They wanted to stone Jesus. So they, they raise up this loaded question. But Jesus knows this. John 2.25 says that he knew all men. He had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? Who can understand it? Your heart will deceive you. My heart will deceive me. God knows the heart. And when you line up your thinking in the motives of your heart with Scripture, it's like a light, man, a spotlight that shines to the furthest crevice and corner. He knows what's in man. So their purpose here is to test him, it says. Or to tempt him. And here it's used in an evil sense. Meaning to... It's a term that means to lead into sin. 
which was impossible. Amen. Jesus couldn't have sinned. It's impossible for him to sin. He was God. So their desire here is not even-handed justice, but they want to hoist Jesus onto the horns of a dilemma. Their purpose was to cause Jesus to give an answer that would violate the Mosaic law. They wanted him to violate the very law of God. Because if he would have said, don't stone her, he would have been viewed as a violator of Almighty God. They would have placed a charge against him, condemned him before the Sanhedrin, in an attempt to destroy his influence over the people, now get this, as well as destroy him. He was starting to gain a following of true believers. The majority didn't believe. You see that in John 6. Most of the people went out from him and followed him no more. The more difficult and, and confronted his teaching became, they went out from him. The road to heaven is straight and it's narrow. Very few make it in there by, but broad is the way. Wide is the road. Many go in that way. So they want, they want him out. They've already accused him of blasphemy. Now, on the other hand, had he said, go ahead, stoner, he would have violated the Roman magistrates who affirmed by this time the exclusive right to enforce any and all capital punishment. So he would have been taking the law of the land into his own hands. They therefore would have, well, they would have stoned her, and when the Romans came, they would have said, the rabbi told us, we caught her in adultery, our law says, stone her. He said, stone her, so we stoned her then he would have been arrested, taken to jail, taken out of the picture. So they figured that they had Jesus between a rock and a hard place here. Notice their question here was emphatic, forceful. Teacher, hey, you, what do you say? What do you say? What shall we do? She broke the law. It reveals for us that they ask it over and over and over again, pressing in, pressing in, leaning over. What do you say, teacher? Jesus is nobody's pawn. He will not be manipulated by anyone. He will never be heart-pressed. He will never be outwitted. Yet so many, even today, attempt to do so. Does your mind, does your life attempt to manipulate Jesus? Do you presume upon His grace? Do you play a chess match with Jesus, thinking, yeah, I'll just surrender to him at another time. I know what his word says. I know the gospel. But yet you boldly proclaim, I'm saved. I know Jesus. If you or anyone you know is like this, most certainly I say to you, there's no one deceived other than the one who thinks such thoughts. It's deception. Jesus does not entertain their folly. He does not fret or tremble to answer their question. He calmly and coolly stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. That's coolness. Jesus always acts according to his time. He ignores them. He writes on the ground. I can tell the AC doesn't work in this building. Amen? We'll work on that. Now, there's been much speculation as to what Jesus wrote. This is the only record of Jesus writing anything. And we don't know what it said. Jesus is the Word, and therefore needs only to speak. Amen? But perhaps He wrote the secrets of their hearts. The secret sins of the men who brought this woman before Him. 
Or maybe he was simply doodling in the dirt like you do when you daydream. Like, yeah, I could really care less what you've got to say right now. But then you can see him writing in Hebrew. From right to left. Sins. Offense. Guilty. If Jesus was reading in their hearts, what he saw was as bad, if not worse, than the sin of this woman. Huh? Someone as well said, and I quote, If the secret thoughts of a man were written on his forehead, he would never remove his hat. End quote. Amen? Or if they were on the ticker down at the bottom of CNN, or on the screen if we had one. Right? Can you imagine that? Praise God you can't read my mind and I can't read yours. Amen? We're to take on the mind of Christ. As you grow in Christ, you take on the mind of Christ. When you take on the mind of Christ, you take on the thinking of Christ because you take on the commands of Scripture. And then your life follows. But they're shameless. They're unaffected by the silence of Jesus. And they keep pressing for an answer. And that leads us to contrast number three. Divine condemnation and human self-righteousness. Divine condemnation and human self-righteousness. Verses 7 to 9. Verse 7, so when they continued asking Him, He raised Himself up. So imagine them standing there, crowding in on the Lord. You can imagine them stooping over Him saying, well, what do you say? What do you say? What do you say? What shall we do? You know the law. What do we do, teacher? Like little gnats, just irritating. So Jesus, now standing, He said to them, well, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. So these men, who thought they could get Jesus in a catch-22, now face their own quandary here. Jesus' reply put the dilemma back on the questioners, you see. Now, very important, according to Jewish law, the Mosaic law, in any case of capital punishment, the witnesses of the crime were to be the first to commence punishment. That's what the law said. Deuteronomy 17.6, it reads, Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one. Remember when Jesus was brought to trial? They could not find two or three people that agreed on anything against him. Nothing. Continues. The hands of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death. And afterward, the hands of all the people. So, whoever caught these perpetrators in the act would pick up the first stones and they would chuck them first. And then the group behind him would also pick up stones and then they would commence fire. That's what the law said. So, Jesus is not saying that the witnesses of a crime who were by the laws we just read weren't to commence a stoning. And that those who were to commence the stoning were required to be models of sinless perfection. He's not saying that. What he means is that they must not be guilty of that particular sin. You see? The sin that they have brought forward, whatever that sin was. Now, in Jesus' day, and in many societies even today, when it comes to sexual sin, the woman was and is much more likely to fall into trouble than the man. If adultery or things like that happen in our society, oftentimes 
you look at the guy as like a playboy, and then the woman's looked at as a whore. Legally and socially, her reputation could easily be ruined, and the man would walk away. D.A. Carson comments on this. He says, and I quote, The woman was much more likely to be in legal and social jeopardy than her paramour, her illicit lover. The man could lead a respectable life while masking the same sexual sins with a knowing wink. A hot shot, big guy, right? So here we witness the reality of such a double standard, right here. Because the man's not present. In this particular offense of adultery, there would normally be no witnesses unless the spouse walked in. You get it? Because normally, this type of sin occurs in private. So, either these witnesses walked in by accident, very unlikely, or they were purposely present to create a situation that premeditated a trap for Christ. That was their goal. If so, they themselves are guilty. Perpetrators of the crime. They didn't stop it. They probably set it up. So here now Jesus replies, His only infinite wisdom is able. He who is without you among you, go ahead, cast the first stone. Jesus never makes light of the woman's sin. Notice. He does not abolish the seventh commandment, which says, Thou shall not commit adultery. Jesus said in Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to what? To fulfill, to uphold it. He doesn't even set aside the demand, notice, demand of the death penalty. What he does is reveal the wicked sinfulness of the hearts of these men, exposing their guilt in the fact that they were not fit to execute judgment. which they hypocritically desired to uphold, you see? This is hypocrisy. They were guilty of the very hypocrisy that Paul condemned in Romans chapter 2, verse 1, that reads, Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. This is someone who's so taken up with the faults of others that he does not consider his own failures. He's blind to them. Now, we are called to judge. We're called to make a right and proper judgment. Or else, how else could you perform church discipline to someone who's in sin? Amen? This is a hypocritical judgment that's going on here. These legalistic religious Jews had been confronted by God in the flesh, and they were awestruck. They were dumbfounded. They were stupefied. And then verse 8. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Isn't that sweet? These scribes and Pharisees stood in stunned silence. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know where to go. They didn't know what to say. So we see another delayed reaction from Christ. Stoops down and he writes again. Think about this. This is the very hand of God. Writing on the temple floor. Was this dirt? Was it sandstone? I don't know. But it reminds me of the hand of God, the finger of God, that wrote those four ominous words in the Persian language in the story of King Belshazzar in the book of Daniel, where he was writing in plaster. King had used the sacred vessels of, of, of God's temple to, 
to orchestrate this drunken, blasphemous party. And it all came to a halt when this hand appeared, writing in the wall, many, many tekel yufarsim. King was awestruck. He became ashen. His knees shook. He trembled. And then Daniel's brought in to interpret. In Daniel 5.25, it says, This is the interpretation. God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Your kingdom's been divided. Come on now. Isn't that rich? Jesus, the finger of God, writing on the ground. So whatever it was that Jesus wrote, wrote whatever it was, it was his spoken words that pierced their hearts. Verse 9, And then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. They were not convicted by their conscience. Their cowardice guilt was exposed, laid bare. And the accusers, they go out. The olders depart more, depart more swiftly, and their little protégés just follow along. Those who attempted to put Jesus to shame left thoroughly ashamed. They came to condemn. They left condemned. Now, having, having been deeply convicted by this, as the Scripture says, notice what they do not do. Notice this. They do not, as their guilt is exposed, their shame is exposed, here's the condemnation, it did not lead them to repentance. That is terrifying. They did not bow in humble submission. They did not bow in repentance. They did not bow in to surrender to the authoritative Word of God, the God-man, the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. This is equivalent to those who hear the truth of God's law. Year after year, they're deeply convicted, yet they turn away from the only source of forgiveness, the only source of relief, and they become hardened in their unbelief. This is what happens to people who reject the gospel. Conviction does one of two things. It either bursts repentance towards Christ, or it drives people away, never wanting to come back. They'll go to the superficial nonsense churches that don't teach the authoritative Word of God, but if they send her to the authoritative, true teaching of the Word of God, they don't want to hear that. It lays open, it fillets open the heart. It reveals what you really are. And you either bow in humble submission because He's provided the way to salvation, or you walk away and you become callous. And many times God will lift His hand and turn a sinful man or woman over to a debased mind, to their own depravity. To where, as what happened to Israel's, they would not believe, therefore they, what? Could not believe. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 37. So conviction and condemnation, when it's rejected, becomes man's greatest tormentor. And when conviction and condemnation torment you, if you don't submit to the only one who can free you from it, you want to kill it. You want to quench it. So you drink it away. You drug it away. You, do, re, you religion it away. Or you try to work it away by doing a bunch of good works. You won't do it. So after this humiliating defeat, they depart. It's, it's said that the older ones left first because they had more to remember. Right? More violations were brought to mind. It's like getting pulled over for a minor traffic violation. 
You haven't been pulled over for years. And all of a sudden, the officer comes back to the car and says, Sorry, i got to take you in. What? I just did a California roll, brother. Well, you have warrants from 1984. What? Oh, yeah. You know, when you go on a cruise or you go on an airplane and you come back to the continental United States, they'll run your name. If there's any warrants, they'll come and arrest you right there. It happens regularly. Hang out at the airport. Go out to the terminal. God doesn't forget. So they scamper off. They weren't dragging their feet, man. They were moving. They wanted out of there. They were confronted with divine truth. And then Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. So what John is saying here, he's saying now that the ring of accusers that surrounded her had just melted away. Gone. Finger pointing, finger pointing, finger pointing, finger pointing, gone. Because Jesus is there. There was one person left only one that was qualified to throw a stone and murder her and destroy her. It was Jesus. Not only was he without sin in circumstance, he was also without sin in his very nature because he was God incarnate, incapable of sinning. Totally qualified. But now he addresses the woman for the first time. And that leads us to the last contrast. Divine commendation divine commendation and human forgiveness in verses 10 and 11. Verse 10, When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Now the term woman here is an entirely respectful manner of address. Actually restoring some dignity. In John chapter 2 verse 4, Jesus refers to his mother as woman. Again in John 20 verse 13, refers to as woman. Kind of like man. Not tramp, not harlot, not scarlet, not whore. Man, where are your accusers, woman? He knew where the accusers went. But what he's pointing out here is the great favor that has been bestowed upon her. Don't forget this. The great favor that's being granted to her. The sentence of condemnation that the law demanded had not been applied against her by any of her accusers. None of them. The Lord's rebuke of them had prevented their pronouncing sentence upon her. And then Jesus is there, nor does He pronounce sentence upon her. But nevertheless, He never proclaimed her to be innocent. As he simply asked, has no one condemned you? He knows she's guilty, crying out loud. May that be a reminder to us. Our job is not to condemn the world. Guess what? The world's condemned. They're already condemned in their unbelief. John chapter 3, verse 18. If people quote the wonderful John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That's why I'm saved. Well, in no way does your life represent someone who's born again. So you might want to check verse 18. It says, Everyone who's an unbeliever is condemned. That's the condemnation. We don't need to condemn them. They're already condemned. We're to bring people to the judgment. Get this. We are to be as redeemed people, sinners saved by grace. It is our job to bring people to the judgment of the Word of God. Which reveals the fact that they're condemned, you see. So you point out the bad news and that's where you present the what? The good news, which is the gospel. Gospel means good news. How can you 
receive and embrace the good news if you don't know the bad news. You can't. That's why these people just accept Jesus in your heart and believe He's your Savior. They never heard the bad news. They don't even understand what they're doing. Crazy. True, sister. That's right. So she answers, verse 11. She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, we see the attitude of Jesus toward the woman. The accusers had been accused and they were lacking. Gone. Disappeared. It was now God incarnate and this woman. He doesn't ask if she's guilty. She was. But in a tone of gentle reassurance and and, an earnest warning, don't miss that part, he asks, are there others who condemn you? She answers, no, Lord. And he says, then go, sin no more. Jesus answered her, neither do I condemn you. Now get this. The law of righteousness demands punishment. God is righteous. God is holy. Man is degenerate. Man is lost. Now understand this. No defiled thing can enter the presence of holy, almighty, righteous God. Nothing. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. No one can stand in the presence of holy God. God's truth, God's law, His holy character demand that any deviation from perfect righteousness must be punished. It must be punished. Holy justice must be satisfied. Unless, unless sin is forgiven. Jesus lets the woman go because of forgiveness. He lets her go. He forgives her. But, as you read Scripture, God can't merely forgive and just violate His justice. Because that would violate His holy nature. He just can't go forgiving people and let them go. You can't do that because that violates His other attributes, you see. And God's attributes must be equally balanced. He is full of wrath. And also love. Justice. Mercy. Those things, it doesn't do this. They, they're balanced because God is perfect. His nature is complete. So there's this apparent dilemma here. If God is holy and just, injustice must be upheld, how can he apply mercy to this woman and just let her go? And the answer is, it's for the same reason that you and I stand here. If you're in Christ, you're forgiven. And only if you're in Christ, only if you're born again and saved. It's the same reason, the same purpose, and it's this. Justice, watch this. Justice and mercy. Get that. Justice and mercy, wrath and forgiveness, all met at the cross. God's just. He unleashed His wrath on the perfect sacrifice, His Son. Therefore, mercy is granted. God's justice is appeased. It satisfies. That's what propitiation means. Satisfaction. He can't just let people go. So justice and mercy, wrath and forgiveness, all converge at the cross. The cross which at this time loomed upon the horizon for Jesus. And that was the grounds for commendation. Divinely granted by God. So the reason she was forgiven, as only God can forgive, is that mercy was poured out upon her, but not apart from justice. 
for it was the righteous Holy One. Jesus Christ that would suffer as though He were unrighteous, who would suffer as though He were unholy. With the cross in view, He could say, neither do I condemn you. That's grace. That is mercy. So, the promise to her that day was paid forward, you see. It was paid forward. And it's paid forward to us today. And it was paid back to those who believed in the Old Testament. How do people get saved in the Old Testament? As they look forward by faith to the sacrificial promise of God through His Son, Jesus Christ, the same way in which we look back by faith to the centerpiece of time, the cross, the sacrifice of the perfect Son, Jesus Christ. His blood covers the Old Testament and the New Testament saints. Those who believe and are saved by grace. Therefore, we rejoice in what Ryan read from this morning. Romans 8, verse 1, that says, There's therefore now no what? Condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're not in Christ Jesus, if you just agree with the facts about Jesus, but if you're not in Christ Jesus, you're condemned because you stand in unbelief. You must be in Christ to not be condemned. Now, some legalist at this point, or someone who has a very man-centered theology as though we bring something to the table of salvation. Like, well, we have to bring the faith in order to be saved. Wrong. Faith is a gift. At this point, they'll pipe up and they'll protest. Well, where's her faith? It doesn't say that she believed. How can he let her go without a single word of belief on her part? Come on now. After all, don't we bring faith to the table? The answer is so obvious that it's going to be easy to miss. Don't miss it. This is not a story about a woman's faith. This is not a story about hypocritical unbelief. This is a story about Jesus Christ providing sovereign grace and forgiveness. She was dragged to Jesus. You get that? She was dragged to Him because of accusations for which she was guilty, by the way. She wasn't seeking Jesus. She was dead in trespasses and sins. She was driven downward towards eternal death. And then Jesus met her and released her from the condemnation. That's grace. That's mercy. These men took her as a captive. Jesus set her free. They wanted to afflict her. Jesus refined her. They saw the darkness of her sin. Jesus shed the light of grace upon her life. They wanted her condemned. Jesus was willing to forgive but it didn't come free. Cost. It cost. Romans 8.33 Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who? Nobody. Nobody. It was God who... It is God who justified. It is God who justifies. No one can bring an accusation against God's elect. What? End result? Case dismissed. Case dismissed. Freed from all blame. That's what this woman was. Free. But notice it doesn't end there. When Jesus saves, His first instruction in following Him is the same today as it was then. Go and sin no more. There's never any reason to think that there's forgiveness without repentance, friends. Never. Never. Because, now check this out, I'm closing up. Because 
true repentance is the manifestation, it is the sign, it is the demonstration of grace, belief, and forgiveness. When you've been granted grace to believe, forgiveness, redemption, the atonement of Christ on the cross, you repent because you understand what you've been saved from. And you understand what you've been saved unto. And that is a life of works that glorify the one that saved you. Notice, Jesus did not say, go and sin no more and then I will not condemn you. He didn't say that. Instead, he said, neither do I condemn you. Go therefore and sin no more. She was dealt with according to grace and truth. So, belief is implied. John 1.17 For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through... Jesus Christ. You know, there's these vain instructors today who teach that one can accept Jesus as Savior without repenting. In other words, they say, well, you can accept Jesus now as your Savior and then later as Lord. Oh, that drives me up a wall when I hear that. They're leading people down the broad road that leads to destruction. These people think they're in, they're deceived. Jesus. This whole idea of what it means to accept Jesus into one's heart minus life-changing repentance produces worthless decisions for Jesus Christ, quote-unquote, decision. Worthless. Such an act of God, this kind of grace dispensed to a sinner, reveals unconditional love. You can't earn this. There's no way you can earn this. Therefore, the truly forgiven sinner will not take advantage of the grace of God. No way. But they will walk in humble repentance. Resembling what's been granted to them. Forgiveness. Cleansing. When Jesus said, go and sin no more, he was saying this. Abandon your life as you now know it. Everything you know, everything that you live, everything you think, turn from it. Go and sin no more. In an anticipation of the cross, Jesus forgave her sin. The proof is in his words, go now and leave your life of sin. It's paid for. It's done. It's done. So the more one understands Christ's love, the more you love Jesus. Amen? We didn't love him first. He first loved what? Us. It's his love dispensed to us first. In response, we love him in return. And when you understand that love, you love him more. And the more you love Jesus, the more you hate sin. And the more you hate sin, the more you love people that are victimized by that sin and they're condemned. And you want to bring them the biblical gospel. Not the watered-down gospel. Not the man-friendly gospel. The biblical gospel. This is a perfect example of it right here. They're all condemned. You were condemned. I was condemned. We're sinners saved by what? Grace. That's unmerited favor. You can't earn it. And that's what she received this day. Because 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become what? New. Christ-likeness. Because we have a union with him that is unbreakable if one is truly born again. This is amazing grace, friends. Amazing grace. 
This is life's greatest mystery. The fact that man's quest for significance and redemption is in the end the Lord of Lords coming to earth to seek and to save that which was what? Lost. You didn't find him. He found you. He found this woman. Perhaps there's no better story to illustrate repentance of a sinful, wretched man in response to God's grace in the story of John Newton. Newton was once a sea captain, slave trader, a cruel and sinful man who lived his debauched life without any reverence whatsoever towards God. During a voyage from Africa to England, God broke him through a violent storm that threatened to sink the ship and he was converted. He was born again. And upon his conversion, Newton was a completely transformed man. He became an incredible preacher and a wonderful hymn writer. His most famous hymn begins with these penetrating lines, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. John Newton, slave trader, once a slave himself. It's for another time. Another of him of um, Newton's hymns that you really hear, rarely hear sung today conveys a powerful truth of sovereign forgiveness. And I want you to listen carefully. Listen carefully as I close with this. It says this. In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agonies and blood who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Shall never till my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to change me with his death though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. Alas, I knew not what I did, but now my tears are vain. Where shall my, where shall my trembling soul be hid? For I the Lord had slain. A second look he gave which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for my ransom paid. I died that thou may live. Thus while his death my sins display in all its blackest hue, such is the mystery of grace it seals my pardon too. With pleasing grief and mournful joy my spirit is now filled that I should such a life destroy, yet live by him that I killed. Amen? Amen to that. Now, on the basis of the shed blood of Christ, your sins are forgiven. If you were born again in Jesus Christ, and Jesus said, unless you were born again, you cannot see heaven. You can't understand it. You can't embrace it. You must be born again. And if you're born again, by the grace of God, you are forgiven. So therefore, brothers and sister, sisters, go and live as though you've been forgiven. Amen? May we live as forgiven sinners, saved by grace. Do you know Him? Do you know Him today? Have you been forgiven? If you don't know Him, you haven't been born again. 
You can't make yourself born again. That's a supernatural act of God. And I believe He has you here by divine appointment to hear the gospel, to bow your knee to the life of Jesus Christ and surrender your life and turn and go and sin no more. And I trust that the Holy Spirit has invaded your heart and your mind today and that you will call out to Him for His mercy to bestow you with the same grace He granted to this woman and He's granted to many who sit amongst you today. Call upon His name, repent of your sin, believe in the work of Christ, and go and sin no more. And if you don't know Him and you need help and understanding, you come talk to me, or I'll lead you to someone who can help you. So believers, does your life resemble one who's been freed from the condemnation that is due to you? That's a question. That's for the church. Does your life resemble such forgiveness? If it doesn't, it's pretty simple. Confess your sins, for He is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Get up, throw that garbage off, and start walking as someone who's cleansed and forgiven and made new. Amen? Take on the mind of Christ, because He paid the price. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Let's pray. Our glorious Lord, mighty God, we praise Your holy name. We thank You for Holy Scripture. We thank You for this wonderful, mighty story. This historical reality of a condemned, accused sinner for which You did not condemn, but You saved. And our lives resemble such a life whether by outward action or inward corruption. We're all in the same camp. We were all condemned. And your church has been brought out from such condemnation and been granted life. We thank you for that together today, Lord. And I pray for anyone here, Lord, who does not know you, that you convict them to their knees, but that their conviction and that their condemnation and the understanding of such condemnation will lead them to repentance, not as these Pharisees, a scattering out. May they deal with it today as they submit their lives to you, we pray. And may your church be built up and edified to do your will for your glory, knowing that we've been cleansed, forgiven, justified, sanctified, set apart for your glory. In Jesus' mighty name, we say together, Amen.